Five years before Sir Anthony Hopkins chilled a generation with his performances, Hannibal Lecter and Jonathan Demme's 1991 adaptation of Thomas Harris's Silence of the Lambs, a more reserved, sinister incarnation had already hit the silver screen. In fact, Michael Mann's Manhunter, based on the first Lecter book, Red Dragon, came and went with little fanfare at all. However, looking back at the movie in 2016, it's quite possible that this movie is the most synonymous with Michael Mann's style and vision as a director. I'm Duncan McLeish. I'm Andy Buckley. And welcome to Opera Omnia. Hi everyone and welcome to episode number three of Opera Omnia, the show that looks exclusively at the body of work of some of the greatest directors to ever put their visions on the silver screen. And this season we are looking at Michael Mann and on the third episode we'll be turning our attention to um, a movie that, let's just put it this way, is considerably better than his previous movie, The Keep. I'm Duncan McLeish and of course, as always, I'm joined by my colleague, co-host and good buddy, Andy Blockley. Andy, are you ready to talk about some Manhunter? I am. I feel like we've got the keep out of the way now, so we're going to roll from here on out. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I don't think we'll be delving back down to the mucky depths of the keep um, any time. Uh, I think in the rest of them, actually. I think there's only, like I said before, there's only one that I haven't seen in his entire back catalogue of movies, and I'm kind of hoping it's better than the keep. <laughs> it's got to be, hasn't it, really? Come on. <laughs> well, yeah, let's... <laughs> <laughs> hopeful optimism this is not doing the nasty this is like a oh, brand evil, new day it's evil speak he didn't, I don't remember him doing that <laughs> yeah this one's really quite interesting because I mean in today's society in today's pop culture Hannibal Lecter is an iconic villain you know what I mean and yeah. when we think of Hannibal Lecter um, most notably now I think from the TV show people obviously know um you know, Mads Mikkel's phenomenal performance, but even that's still overshadowed by Sir Anthony Hopkins, who is, you know, on on the big screen anyway, is the definitive, is the definitive lector. He's not my favourite lector, but he's the definitive lector. Not for me. Okay, yeah, I suppose he is in pop culture, but for me, like, yeah, he's he's not. Mads Mikkel's all the way is the the best incarnation of lector by... Yeah, and there might be people throwing their hands up in outrage at saying that, um, who probably haven't seen the series. Yeah, watch the Um, series. (laughs) And I thought the same thing. I didn't watch the series until well after season one had finished. I think season two might have even started before I finally decided to give it a go. Mm. Um, Yeah, and I was wrong, basically. He, uh, yeah, he's, he's Hannibal for me now Mads Mikkels obviously this guy did it first yeah Brian Cox from Dundee in Scotland um, from Broughty Ferry the very posh area of Dundee Um, Brian Cox played him first um, and yeah a lot of people will think once again 
uh, in popular culture, Silence of the Lambs being the movie that kind of really brings Lecter to the the kind of public public and pop culture vernacular. A lot of people don't actually. I'm surprised how many people don't know about Manhunter. Actually, it's it's quite incredible. Okay. <laughs> um, mm. It's a movie that, like I say, went to went out to little or no fanfare at all. Um, was kind of mixed reviews from from critics and from moviegoers, and has already been remade. It was remade in 2002 um, as its original uh, book title, Red Dragon. Um, and yeah, this one, this one is wholly overlooked, and I think it's criminally overlooked because I think there's a whole hell of a lot to love in this movie, and and we're yeah. we're, we're, we're going to certainly get into it. But I mean, last episode we looked at the keep. Um, neither one of us really liked it. I don't. I, I'm trying to decide if we were too hard on it, but I don't think we were. I think there's going to be people that were listening to the show that have probably got quite a bit of nostalgia for it. Yeah. And um, obviously we're looking at quite I mean it's 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 a difficult one to be completely sort of objective because there are films for me that you know there's especially a film like this like Manhunter you know for me I always watched Silence of the Lambs first and that was my my lecture and then I kind of went back to this one so I'm trying to be objective with this but we didn't have much choice really for um to be majorly objective with the key just because it wasn't a film I don't think we were both that, uh, that familiar with whereas it'd be some people that really knew it well um, I think we were pretty fair to it, to be honest. I um, think so you know, as well. I think we, I, I think we're maybe a bit too kind to Andy. Reckon? Yeah. Listening back, back yeah, listening back, I thought we were wholly positive in sections where I was like, that actually, yeah. when I think about it, mm, mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we gave it a six. It's not terrible for me. A six isn't a complete failure of a movie. Like yeah. five or below is a film I think it's completely failed. Six is just. You know, it's done some things right, but it's just not that good, and that's that's that movie, that's the key. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're turning our attention. So this is three years later, um, after after the keep, Michael Mann works on an adaptation of Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, which was a, a book that had come out to fairly fairly successful uh, critical acclaim. It had become a bestseller. And it, it was one of the first books to really kind of focus on the idea of criminal profiling. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, was a, a dramatic move away from how kind of police officers, detectives and FBI agents had been played and, and you know, or written about in previous works. You know, the, the, mm. the, uh, the forensic idea of science or the psychopathology, so to speak, of serial killers hadn't really been touched. And that's mostly because... The psychopathology of serial killers, etc., had only really become noticeable, or, or terms that were used, kind of towards you know the book's release, you know, with, with the capture of serial killers, um, like Sir John Wayne Gacy, you know, Ted Bundy, etc., and um, this yeah. idea of what the serial killer was actually like, um, or, or the term serial killer, etc., are, are things that come in much later on. Hence, this kind of very fresh feeling idea which I don't think audiences connect with at all when this movie comes out. I think a lot of the complaints on, um, I'm, I'm jumping well ahead, but a lot of complaints on uh, Peterson's performance as well Graham, come down to this idea of people just did not have a clue 
they thought it was, you know, they thought it was kind of ridiculous, and this idea of criminal profile, and you know, you know, police officers don't do that. Yeah, um, and I think as well they don't actually. I mean, I think it's a great depiction of Will Graham. If we're looking, I mean, maybe we should compare the. We should, the, yeah, the definitely. Will, with the other Will Grahams, mm-hmm. um, I think again the TV series nailed Will Graham for me, but only because they had so much time to develop his character. I think yep. given the fact that we only get two hours here, mm-hmm. it's a really good depiction of Will Graham. And the my, my only real criticism, and I don't think this is really any fault with the movie, it's probably just a difficult thing to portray within two hours, is this incredible empathy yeah. to the point where he can literally put himself into the mind of the serial killer. And, he, and they do have a little scene where he tries to explain it to his son. Mm-hmm. Um but it's weird because I think in the series they explain it too well. And I don't mean too yeah. well for like for me or you or probably many of our listeners, but too well for the general public to the point where they just thought it was a bit uncomfortable yeah. and a bit weird. Do you know what I mean? Um, when that probably went some way to explain why the show was cancelled. But in this, I think they kind of strike a slightly sort of happy balance. And like you say, it's a weird thing to try and explain to a quite a novice audience in the 80s. Mm-hmm. What it truly means to be an empath and to, to you know to put your mind your mind in the mind of a serial killer to catch the guy, which is basically what he has to do. You know that's why they bring this guy in because he's got this really odd sort of um, skill, mm-hmm. which is kind of crippling for him. It's not a good skill. You know it's a life it's a life changing sort of skill that's put him in serious sort of mental depression and illness in the past, which is yeah. obviously why he's so reluctant to do it. Um, apparently he's not happy with his performance is he in real life the guy who played Will Graham uh, William back, Pearson um, he really wasn't pleased with it apparently but I, I, I think, think he, he did a good job I think he's great in it I think um, when you compare it to um, Edward Norton's performance in Red Dragon I mean they yeah. really don't like Edward Norton is slumming that performance in Red Dragon at all he's not playing it anywhere near as kind of as serious as Peterson is playing it in um, Manhunter and he doesn't he doesn't actually like they don't really it's, it's interesting because like I've I've in the case of this one I'm not saying I'm a red dragon expert but I've read the book several times I, I love the novel yeah. um, and I've seen all incarnations of it so I've seen you know Manhunter I've seen Red Dragon both both movies several times and I'm a huge fan of of uh, the Hannibal TV show so I've been through their version in the third season of Red Dragon as well so I've I've kind of I've kind of done them all and um, when you see how they set up the the idea of Will Graham as a character in Red Dragon from 2002 they really don't go into much about his empathy at all towards serial no. killers out with the the conversation at the very start the kind of flashback se- sequence with Hannibal Lecter which I believe they only wrote in um, you know as a, as a as a kind of opportunity to get you know Anthony Hopkins back in and close a door but to sell tickets I mean I remember I really really enjoyed the Hannibal movie yeah. um, and a lot of people don't but I really love it and then obviously the Red Dragon came out and I just remember the trailer being all Lecter. Yeah. Like, it was literally like, you know the way they, they uh, Brian Cranston's all over the fucking Godzilla trailer? Yeah. <laughs> they did the same thing with Lecter for Red Dragon, and he's in it for less than 15 minutes. Yeah. And they're literally playing on, obviously, you've got the incredible interplay in Silence of the Lambs between him and Clarice Starlin. 
And they basically sold Red Dragon on exactly the same premise. We're doing the same thing, we're just doing it with Will Graham this time. Yeah. And that's not what the film is at all. It didn't need to be in there. Like, you didn't, obviously, they do need the back and forth between Lecter because he's helping him catch the killer again. But that whole scene of him catching him, mm-hmm. I think, as cool as I remember it being when I was a bit younger, just because I like, I just want to see more Lecter on the screen because I was a bit obsessed with it when I first like, watched Silence of the Lambs. Like you say, it's just written in there just to put asses on seats in cinemas, and it's just like it's just a bit cheap, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's this idea of because then um, when you when you read the the novel, Lecter is used very sparse in the novel, Manhunter. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sorry, Red Dragon. He's used very, very, very sparse, um, and there's so much extra Lecter content put in for Red Dragon. It's it, it's quite it's quite. It's exploitative and not yeah. not in a good way, um, and by then Sir Anthony Hopkins is is playing Lecter to the the nth degree of kind of pan- pantomime performance, you know when he's walking about saying I have oodles of time and you're like oh for fuck's sake no yeah, no <laughs> you know what I mean yeah it's, it's a bit cringe it's a bit cringeworthy isn't it Cause it's like, far too cringy it's almost like he. <laughs> He's aware of him. He's he's too self-aware at that point, and yeah. he wouldn't be like that. Like yeah. it's almost like he's aware he's in a movie at that point, and he, like you're not meant to know you're in a film when you're in a film. You, you know, it's, it's it's a character, isn't he's it? He's become so, yeah. Freddy. He's become Freddy Krueger at that yeah. point. You know what I mean? He's he's the he's the one one-liner, you know, joke cracking, and he's he's not supposed to be that. And that's kind of why I adore Manhunter, especially coming back to this time, is how cold and clinical. Um, Cox plays Lecter, but he plays it very kind of playfully as well. Um, and I love their interactions. And once again, Cox is in the movie less than ten minutes. Yeah. Um, and for me, he like the, the the beauty of the the performances here are you get two fantastic villain performances with with um, Cox as Lecter, but Tom Noonan as the Tooth Fairy is is unbelievably creepy. I mean, mm-hmm. like. He, he's not. He doesn't obviously have the the kind of bulk frame of the novel, um, or the bulk frame that certainly uh, Ralph Fiennes and as I, the actor's name escapes me that plays him in the TV series, because he is supposed to be in the novel. He is, you know, ex army, and you know, he's he, he he's a guy that takes very 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 good care of his body. You know, like yeah ripped, shredded completely. Very much like yourself, Andy Blockley, having met you in person, and we'll touch on that <laughs> later on. You know, he, he is, you know, bustling biceps and all the rest. Sure. And this movie... You know what, right? Do you know, I was just, um, just like completely changing the subject to a different movie. Train spotting and Begbie, mm-hmm. right? You do not need to be fucking muscly to be terrifying yeah. and hard as fucking... Like, I remember when they, when they casted... Um, because in the book, in the train spotting book, Beg is a much bigger guy, mm-hmm. and they, you know, and and Robert Carlyle said some of the scariest fuckers I know are the tiny guys. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it's a bit like this with um, with Noonan. He's not a small guy; he's a very tall guy, but he's an incredibly skinny guy. Yeah, but he's totally believable. You know, these people are, are a bit tapped. They've got psycho strength they mm-hmm. can tap into. You know, they've got, and it's the aggression as well. Is 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 not all just about your your, your strength, is it? If you've got that aggressiveness, yeah. You know, so for me, it's yeah, it's great. Um, he's my favourite depiction of Dollar Hyde. I um, think I probably agree with you actually. Yeah, um, 
just because as good as Ralph Fiennes is and the other guy played it in the TV series, it's a forgettable... It's, it's an amazing character, but I think the actors are quite forgettable that play them mm-hmm. to the point where I can't remember what the guy's name is that does the TV series. And it's weird because the character of, of Dollar Hyde's amazing. Yeah. Um, but I kind of feel anyone could have played Dollar Hyde in Red Dragon and anyone could have played him in the TV series and it wouldn't have affected my enjoyment. Yeah. This is the only movie where I can't imagine someone else in the role because he does it so well. But there's, there's that thing about the I've I've said it many times before, the scariest killers for me are the ones where we don't get a horrendous amount of of knowledge about their backstory. Yeah. Um, and there is in the book. In the book there are huge chapters on, you know, Dollarhide's um youth. You know, he's okay. his very abusive grandmother who who ran a kinda a a, a, a kinda what would be a senior centre, you know, where basically these patients were sent and she abused them and took their money and all the rest and he was horrendously okay. abused and yeah. we get that in Red Dragon through you know kind of flashback voiceovers um, and we get it in the Hannibal TV show as well through a very similar method we don't really get that at all in Manhunter and I kind of like that, Dollarhide is just he's just this horrible creepy human being that that is methodically stalking people because he has this compulsion to be needed to be loved um, and his warped sensibility of doing that is 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 enacted through his his killings Mm. i think that's i think that's brilliant we strip it a lot i mean for what is essentially if we discount the tv show um i think i may be wrong in saying this i'm going to double check just before i make a total tit of myself but i think manhunter is longer I think it is. I think it's longer than Red Dragon. Uh, no, they're about the same time, actually, right? So they're about okay. the same time yeah, and length. But I think about how much Red Dragon shoves in. So we get a lot more time with uh, uh, Reba and, and Dollarhide's relationship yeah. in Red Dragon. We don't really get a lot of that at all in Manhunter. We get no. a lot of time... With the kind of the flashback sequences with them all traumatized in the the the, you know, the kind of the, the old folks mansion house and you know and I, I, we actually get quite a lot of dollar hide as well in Red Dragon, which we yeah. don't get in Manhunter. Yeah, mm. I think Manhunter is. I think Manhunter has more substance if that's possible. It's the less is more approach. Um, we don't really meet Dollarhide until about the halfway mark of the movie, and we don't yeah, really meet. That's Reba. good as well because he, he's mentioned within the first sort of three minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I like the fact that you don't see him for the first hour because then you're constantly wondering, fucking hell, who is this guy? You know, yeah. well, the, pretty much the first thing you find out. I mean, the film opens with like a found footage shot, mm-hmm. presumably that's been taken by him. Um, and then we immediately find out that this is a serial killer on a lunar cycle. Yeah. Um, yeah, you don't need to see him straight away. And I think, I don't know if they do this in the book, but the weird thing they do in Red Dragon, they show him as quite um, someone who interacts with other humans quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously he's got, I know he's got sort of the, um, you know, the, the lip. Yeah, he's uh, got a hair lip. The, the, the cleft palate yeah. um, operation he's obviously had. Um, I don't know. Is how how sort of socially, uh, like um, you know, socially comfortable is he in the book? Because he's quite. He seems fairly sociably comfortable in the Red Dragon, and not so much in Manhunter. And I don't yeah. know what I think. It's more believable in Manhunter that he'd be a bit of an oddity. Um, the, he he does 
talk to people, but what they get, what they hit spot on with with Manhunter is that he covers his mouth when he speaks. He, he doesn't okay. like people seeing him speak, so he, they get that spot on. You know, his hand raises kind of over to cover his mouth. Um, yeah. it's the TV show that's most accurate with his like with the presentation of how he speaks. Um, he, he lisps certain words, like certain letters. Sorry. Um, so in the TV show, you get. He, he, deliberately avoid using words with the letter S in them. Okay. Um, the TV show does that better um, yeah. than than Manhunter does or Red Dragon, but... Yeah, because she a... mentions it in Manhunter. She mentions the words that he avoids, but you never notice it as the viewer that he's yeah. doing that. Yeah, and think. he deliberately... He del- they mention that in the book that there's this conscious effort for him to cover his mouth when he speaks to people and also at the same time avoid words which bring attention to the fact that he's had this operation um yeah. which once again i think is fascinating i think you hit the nail on the head and i know we're, we're we're jumping so far off top but we're not really talking about the movie yet but you completely hit the nail on the head i love the fact that we are about an hour in this movie before we finally see dollar Hyde because we see everything he has done and the movie yeah. that you start to build up this image of what this guy will look like and when you mm-hmm. finally see him it's in the most freaky way that you see him. He's basically standing in front of a kidnapped reporter wearing like a stocking over the top part of his head. And yeah. He's wearing the most ridiculous 1980s silk shirt. And <laughs> it's, it's it so fucking creepy and so weird. Yeah, but it, it doesn't date. Like, there's a scene I noticed with Will Graham where he's just in trousers and a shirt and he's got just the weirdest, like, pleated baggy trousers right <laughs> up to his belly button. Yeah. And that looks weird, but it doesn't look weird on Dollar Hyde. I can imagine Dollar Hyde would wear the same thing in the year 2000. Yeah, it's, it's and so And it just so adds strange. to the creepiness, doesn't it's, it? it? This movie's, like, the, the phrase so painfully 80s springs to mind but in, in all the best ways um so so let's 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 do it we're, we're 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 concentrating quite a lot on characters and we'll certainly come back to them but andy what is what is the 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 synopsis if you give us a slightly more detailed synopsis what is the synopsis of of manhunter what happens in the movie i'd say we've got a um sort of an fbi profiler who's hunting a serial killer Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of as simple as that. Um, what's what's really interesting, like you say, is that this profile profiling thing was not really that popular then. So this is probably one of the first movies that does this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had some incredible kind of serial killer movies later on. Um, but yeah, but this is one of the ones that kind of did it first. And, you know, you've got the, the, the death... The, I mean, the scenes in the house are yeah. fucking brutal. Like, the murder scenes... Oh god, you can just picture like there's literally blood everywhere. There's like the arterial spray, the blood splatter, the pools, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, that you see now all over the place. You know, the gorier the better, especially on some of the TV shows and stuff. Um, but again, for the eighties, it was quite cheesy with its gore. This is kind of quite brutally realistic, isn't it? Yeah, it's darker. It's, much, it's, a, it's a darker tone when you compare the move Like you say, like late, well, eighty-six or past the halfway point. It's all cheesy slashers. And you know if there are movies about serial killers, I mean this this predates this predates Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which obviously takes the the idea of the serial killer to the next level, like a, a much darker level. But yeah, in a lot of respects, Manhunter is ahead of its time by mm. you know a good couple of years. Anyway, it's when you consider that you're only talking five years, and then you've got Silence of the Lambs. 
yeah. it's interesting to see how far cinema moves mm. in those five years but Manhunter certainly in the, the kind of cutting edge the cusp of this this kind of change from what would be classed as horror cinema and be dubbed psychological thriller <laughs> yeah the psychological thriller because you can't possibly say that you loved a horror film yeah, <laughs> just laugh at you wouldn't they yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it is quite a, a simple premise. Is it like as intricate and as detailed as it gets with the character study of, of all the you know, kind of everybody in it? Um, it is a really simple premise, but just done so well and done so early on, like you say. Um, mm-hmm. Nothing was that dark in the eighties. There was still a lot of cheese hanging around, and there is a bit of cheese in this. And I'm going to criticise that later um, mm-hmm. when I talk about my score. Um, but yeah, this is a nice dark serial killer movie, um, and some it, and it's shot so well, isn't it? As well, I mean, we've got to talk about the. I mean, there's an opening shot sort of on the beach within the first five minutes, so the most incredible sunset shot. Yeah. Um, that needs to be a screensaver really on your laptop. Yeah, it's it's, it's the epitome of Michael Mann. That's what, the, like yeah. I said in my introduction, this is to me. And I, I was I was speaking to a Legion showrunner. Um, Borans though when when I describe Manhunter to me Manhunter is the most Michael Mann film that Michael Mann's ever manned uh, you know what I mean it, it really is everything that would everything that you would use as a description of Michael Mann as a as a director is all in this movie every single yeah. aspect is in this movie and for, in, in most cases this is the first time he's really kind of put his stamp on particular things, whether it's, you know, the overtly obvious kind of blue pastel effect that seems to be over the majority of the shots in this movie, the very cold clinical whites that are used specifically. I mean, when you consider how much he turns things on his head in this movie compared to to watching something along the lines of Silence of the Lambs. I mean, when you see Dr. Lecter and Silence of the Lambs, of course it's in the dungeon of an insane asylum. And this mm. one it is the most bright white, you know, room where he's, he's being kept. And it doesn't... It, it kind of looks like an asylum, um, but an asylum which you would associate with with kind of medical science, uh, science and not with the, the kind of... Which is funny when I, th- I think about how people, you know, argue that Silence of the Lambs isn't a horror movie and then you're like that. He's kept in the basement, this creepy dungeon um, mm. of a mental institute that looks like a, like a house on top of a haunted hill. Of course it's a horror movie. And here yeah. it, it's not. And um, you, you get the, the fashion obviously is very Miami Vice um, in this movie. But I think we're where Manhunter kind of becomes this the epitome of Michael Mann is, is the sunset shots once again it's the score which I mean Tangerine Dream don't do the score for this one but you would be forgiven for thinking Tangerine Dream like yeah. it really fucking does he just went and got like another group of he got a group of artists to do a compilation for this one who all sound like Tangerine Dream um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's ne- it's necessary for this as well. Like it perfectly complements the, the 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 odd monochrome shots and the mood and the atmosphere. It's like I don't know if Tangerine Dream was just on holiday or something, but I'm so <laughs> glad that it does sound like them because it's eerie and dreamlike and totally necessary for like the location, the setting, the mood, and the tone of the movie. 
I'm really pleased he kind of made that choice. You, you are right. It, it, it aesthetically fits the attention to detail with the shots, with the score that goes with it, with the camera angles, the way things are set up, is very much Michael Mann. It's that kind of clinical approach to cinema making, and it, it, it works for me. It, it really, really does. Um, you kind of like, if you strip it back to its bare bones, it is basically, it's a, it's a criminal profiler who we, we find out um, managed to to get get Gareth Jacob Hobbs, who is like his story is detailed very very you know it's kind of fleshed out in the TV show, but ultimately his capture of Hannibal Lecter and this idea of him being pulled back after a case which basically you know almost killed him and mm. destroyed him mentally. Um, as this yeah. guy he's, he's dragged back in by the FBI from his, his old boss the, his old boss Crawford who brings him back in to, to hunt this serial killer knowing fine well that when he starts working on the case he'll get dragged back in uh, what I love yeah. about this movie as well is he's the one that makes a conscious decision to go f- and speak to Lecter um, yeah. and Red Dragon it's it's portrayed like the book uh, Red Dragon in that Crawford is using Graham fine well knowing in the back of his head that you know he will eventually have to go and speak to Lecter but in, in Manhunter it's, it's Graham's choice to go and see Lecter um, okay and I I, I, I I quite like that I quite like that angle of, of well it makes sense to me I mean first of all it makes sense that you would help the FBI because if you know that people are being murdered and you're probably one of the only people in the country maybe with the skills to save these people mm-hmm. you can't really say no so for me like his reason to go and see Lecter is just to try and shortcut this investigation and get it done quick so yeah. if he needs a bit of help and he's got to ask the guy that nearly killed him but it might save his family and not I don't mean his family from being killed I mean his family from the mental trauma and you know I mean he could split with his missus over this you know yeah. if, if he has another sort of turn for the worst so yeah he's going to go and see Lecter because maybe Lecter can help him you know and his ego, that's the thing, isn't it, with Lexi? You know, it's the ego of, do you think you can help me? Do you think you're clever enough to catch this guy? Yeah, I like that, once again, I like the... This is where I think Cox is brilliant as Lecter. Like, like, how to put this? Cox is a very eloquent speaker. I mean, in this movie, you would there are certain accent twists that clearly, clearly note him as being Scottish. You know, he's, yeah. he's, 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 he has that kind of. Once again, like I say, he's from a, a posh area of Scotland, so he does have that proper way of talking, if you know what I mean. Um, which, which I think totally suits him. But their interactions are brilliant because Cox doesn't give any time or space in the dialogue. So where he says, you know, when. Um, Will Graham says to, to, to Hannibal in this movie, um, you know, I kind of wanted to see if you, you know, like a challenge to see if you're, you know, if this guy's as good as you or as smart as you. And when that mm. line finishes in both incarnations after this, there is the kind of pause and then, you know, the return of, well, by implication, uh, that would make you smarter than me. And this movie, yeah. you, don't, you don't get that at all. And that, to me, highlights the superior intellect in the portrayal of Hannibal in this one and that no longer has the sentence come out it is processed in the witty comeback 
comes back from from Brian Cox is like that. Oh well, by saying that in implication, you think that you're smarter than I. Um, mm. And it's brilliant. I th- I th- I th- like I say, I think Brian Cox is 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 amazing as Lecter in this one because it's it's not the twiddly moustache villain. It's this guy who is you know, and, and, and truth be told, once again, the portrayal of of a. Uh, or Brian Cox's Lecter is based on a real serial killer he, on, on a, uh, a Scottish serial killer um, who'd obviously done a bit of research and study and so, so you get that there's something authentic about his portrayal where he doesn't feel like a, a movie screen villain he feels like yeah, a serial killer apparently um, Michael Mann directed Brian Cox to play Lecter as if he was like a bit of a public schoolboy kind of persona mm-hmm Apparently that was the direction that he gave him, wanting to like your, you know. And apparently Cox had a, a child at the time that was in public school, and he kind of based it on the way he spoke. Yeah, which is like incredibly polite, but also incredibly like knowing almost that you know I'm being polite, but I'm being polite because I have to be polite because I'm in a public school, you know. Yeah. And it's that kind of thing, almost like uh, a little bit cocky, a little bit kind of overly confident, but all the time sort of maintaining the dignity. Yeah, sort of thing. That you get, um, you get um, Cox's Lecter as well. Um, I really get this idea of him wanting to engage Graham. You know, in terms of, do you know why you caught me? Do you know what? Do you know why you're you can do that? Do things we are because we are we have the same mind. We are very similar. Um, when you see. Uh, Hopkins portrayal of it in Red Dragon it is so theatrical it's do you know why you caught me well you know what I mean you're like oh my god here we go Um, toughens your nipples here we go Hannibal Lecter again you don't get that yeah I mean in Silence in Silence of the Lambs for me it is still an incredible movie but my um, my tattoo artist kind of pointed away no he didn't ruin Lecter's character but he kind of pointed out he's almost a bit like Dracula he is. Sort of the well hello Clarice and it's yeah. almost a bit like <laughs> it is, it's, the, it's this kind of iconic, he's playing the role as this iconic villain, this iconic serial killer and I love it yeah. I, I do love it, I think like there are scenes sp- particularly when, when Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs you know, is escaping mm. from, you know, he gets uh, the Pem- Pembrey office uh, you know, Officer Pembrey, and he, he you know, yeah, he just ready when you are, Officer yeah, Pembrey. Oh, just like viciously that bit where he, you finally see him, like, like just get out of the handcuffs and bite his face, and the viciousness and the mask slips, and yeah. you see the monster behind this very polite kind of veneer that he he holds for most of the movie. It's incredible, mm-hmm. but yeah. Cox, you could be forgiven looking at him. And the way he talks, you could be forgiven for forgetting that he is, a, you know, a, a serial killer. He, he kind of, yeah. the, the, and I think that's the fascinating part because serial killers, it's particularly then when dealing with people like Bundy, etc. You know, people would say how much they liked. You know, people would stand up in court for Bundy and say they did not believe, even the forensic evidence, they did not believe it was him because he was too nice and, you know, it helped it helped his, you know, the people he worked with and he was, you know, he was going to be a lawyer and he was going to be a governor and all these things. And people couldn't fathom, they couldn't piece together the crimes with the man. 
And in this movie, they, they never really go into too much detail about what Lecter did. And that's fair, because the novel doesn't really go into too much detail about what Lecter did. Um, yeah. But there's this idea of when you hear their interactions, you almost forget yourself until later on you find out in the movie that he has given his address out to the Tooth Fairy, you know, save yourself, kill them all. Um, and yeah. you're like, this guy is like, he knows fine well that Will's got a, you know, a, a wife. He knows fine well that he's got a kid. But, he, mm. you know, he's, he's essentially sent this malicious serial killer who we have seen what he's done to other families, to that family. What monster would do that? Um, yeah, it's fucking it's brilliant. It's it's chilling. Um, I also love mm. the the kind of late night telephone call um, between Cox and uh, Peterson in this one, where Cox is still rabbiting on where you know how you caught me. It's because we're just the same, and you know Peterson just plays Will Graham is just dropping the phone and oh my, I can't be fucked with this. I don't want to yeah. deal with this. Mm. Um, and he takes the phone off, but, you know, Lecter's still talking. <laughs> you know, he's still like... Mm-hmm. And, like, because he yeah, loves yeah. to send his own voice, he loves to be heard, yeah. and he's almost validated by his interactions with Will Graham. You know, becomes relevant again. He's not a guy mm. who's locked away somewhere. And they touch on that really well in the TV show as well, as, mm. you know, that Hannibal needs that interaction. Inter- he needs that... Um, dialogue with Graham to really justify his existence, to justify well, yeah, what he's done. I mean, you know, people might criticise why does Lexa want to help the FBI, but it's like loads of reasons: leverage, boredom, ego. Like, there's so many reasons why he'd want to help. Yeah, it's Bundy again. That's Ted Bundy helped uh, track down the the Green River Killer. He did have criminal profile for it. Um, yeah, where most of it was bullshit, but a couple of the facts he was spot on with. Like the killer will come yeah. back and either sleep with the body, um, or you know come back to look at the body and maybe masturbate over. Um, and he was spot on. Okay. That's what the Green River Killer did. Uh, so he was like once right. again giving this insight into what he had done. And it's 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 kind of interesting that you know Lecter and and this one gives the insight. I, I, I just I think there's a, the, the it's just very well done. Um, a couple of the performances are really. Like out with, I know we're focusing on these two. Um, I love Freddie Long in this movie. Um, I think he is <laughs> what a twat. He totally what a is. To be. <laughs> He's the the yeah. pinnacle of what you expect a kind of sleazy journalistic reporter is, and I almost can't take um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance in Red Dragon. That seriously, uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't come across yeah. as cheesy as uh, as it mm. does <clears throat> in the portrayal of Freddie Lowndes, uh, Stephen Lang playing him in this movie, where you're just like you he's are perfect for the era, isn't it? He's perfect eighties yeah. twat. Yeah, he's just a total sleaze ball. You get this idea that he's doing anything within his power to to, to get the story, to you know, to to make the headlines, to sell the papers, and all the rest. And I love how, you know, it is made very clear in this movie and very clear in the TV show as well that Graham just sells him out, like totally sells him down the river. And um, as a result, there's no really any remorse in in what happens to him. 
you know, like from no. Graham at all. It's just like, oh, well, did he get that? All oh, right, didn't get that. He kind of just picks himself up and moves on, um, <laughs> which I think I think that's wonderfully cold as well. But that's and it's and it's a fact that's what he he knows fine well. He's using them, like from the moment he gives that interview, he knows he's using them. Um, he obviously doesn't expect him to die in a horrible way, but. Um, he knows he's using them. What did you think of Chilton in this one? Because this is the most reserved performance of Chilton out of all the incarnations. Yeah, I liked him. I mean, I yeah. don't really think you meant to. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I mean, it, just because, as you know, he, he as much as he kind of knows what he's doing, getting Will into this, he also is trying to save the lives of families. You yeah. know, he's not a t- he's not doing it because he'd be a complete dick. Um, but yeah, he's just a likable guy, and I think it's because I've seen that actor in quite a lot of the stuff that I've really enjoyed him in. Yeah. Um, I find it difficult to to look at him any other than a kind of a you know just a guy that's doing what he needs to do kind of thing. Yeah, he's not trying to. We we don't like the the further portrayals of Chilton. We don't think he's you know trying to get a book off the back of Hannibal Lecter as much, um, or trying to make himself famous. You know, for the fame he's in this. You know, to like you say on some level to help where possible. Um, yeah, to get us through it, and, and that's not to take anything away from the the character of Chilton, and you know the uh, essentially what would be the the three movies that came afterwards, which I love because he's that he's basically he's Freddie Lynn's to me, and the the next couple of movies is just this sleazy guy who has this aspirations of being famous off the back of serial killers. Um, yeah. And it's not played here as well. Um, I think Crawford's played very well. Uh, Dennis Farina, I think. Sorry, I'm getting confused there. I, I thought Dennis Farina was, no, honestly, yeah, he's Crawford. He's the one that I really liked. Yeah, I think um, he's, he's brilliant in this one. And to be honest with you, Crawford in all the movies has played as a more likeable character than he is in the TV show. Because, yeah. you know, in the TV show, he's clearly exploiting Will Graham. And, um,. What's his face? Uh, Morpheus. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll just call him Morpheus. Um, Morpheus. Uh, Morpheus plays him in such a way that we know fine well that he's purely exploiting Will Graham. And this movie, there's almost an aggressive way that Dennis Farina kind of puts... That there's a great argument with them burning the, the midnight oil, so to speak, and he's like, he's like you know, I'll we'll pick it up in the morning. And... Um, mm. You know, Peterson, like, as, as well, Graham, you know, breaks into the... No, you dragged me back into this fucking case, and if, we're, if I'm mm. working this case, we will stay up as late as we need to to crack it to stop another family. We're not just going to say, oh, well, we tried as hard as we could in this lunar cycle. We'll need to wait for him to kill, and then we'll pick up the next lunar cycle. You know, the, the family's blood's on our hands. Yeah, like we can ease off because we've got four weeks now, and he's like, well, actually, there's still half an hour left. He's not actually done the fucking murder yet. Yeah. You know? It's just, I, I, I love that as well, and you know, Farina's great in, in that performance as as Jack Crawford. I think um, turning back to to, to to kind of Tom Noonan, so essentially he plays a, a killer called or dubbed the Tooth Fairy. His character's Francis Dollarhide, and the the Tooth Fairy works for a a development company so development as in the good old days not as in software development as what development yeah. has now become so back in the days where you would send your 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 vcr video footage 
off or your your photographs off and someone would professionally develop them for you before digital photography and digital recording um he works for this company who, who basically puts together family videos and through developing these family videos that's his he's basically um picked his his two subjects who are are two women that have families and his plan is to basically you know take out the families then murder the women he smashes up pieces of mirror to put them in basically in their eyes and their mouth so he can see himself as he like parades in front of them or like as he films them and a lector comments that it's this idea of seeing himself because it gives him power, it makes him God. Um, yeah. And I, I love this idea because serial killers are basically the, 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 the turn on is, you know, to take someone's life makes you God. Um, mm. And, like I say, we don't get we don't get Dollar Hyde until very late in this movie. Um, Tom Noonan plays him as a very slight man, but like you said earlier on, who has that freakish strength that mm. comes with with the 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 psychotic ability to to basically tap into reserves that we have but we don't access so you yeah you you cut out this idea of how much will this hurt me to do this it's just you need to do the compulsion takes over Mm. he wears um these horrible like dentures and he bites people which where he gets the name the tooth fairy from um And the character isn't really developed that much in here. We know that he is fascinated by the the paintings of William Blake, in particular the the Red Dragon, which is where the name. Yeah, because apparently they they did they did cover him in tattoos, and then Michael Mann decided that was a bit OTT, so they never shot those scenes. Yeah, you do you get them like you see you get them in in obviously his performance and. Um, and Red Dragon with Ralph Fiennes, and also in in the TV show, we can see the giant Blake Red Dragon. On his back and covered and all, and all the rest, but the I think the I think man makes a conscientious decision to rein that back, and I think like I say before, it kind of works. Um, Noonan is a really quite interesting actor. He's he's played quite a few villains in his time. Um, mm. The year after this, he's in Monster Squad, which I find hilarious. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, he's obviously he did Robocop too. Um, Plays a bit of a paedophile in uh, Eight Legged Freaks. He's, he's grooming that child. <laughs> he, he really fucking is. Um, he's in House of the Devil, where he plays, you know, the the head of a oh yeah, he is yeah. kind yeah. of Satanist cult. He's also plays a kind of over the top pantomime performance of a, like a Dracula, and um, the Roost, which is Ty West's first feature movie. Uh, but plays okay. it in a kind of old fashioned style of the nineteen fifties. It's like this guy introducing. Oh, this is your spooky viewing. Ah, ah, ah. You know, I mean, it's that sort of idea. Um, but yeah. I, lo- I love Noonan in this. He's, he has a physical presence about him, even though he's slight. It's the height, I think. Um, but yeah. He's not a glamorous looking guy in this movie at all. He is balding nah. uh, horribly. He's got like the he's got the, the, the ball patch on the top of his head. His taste in clothes is horrible. Um, and, you know, you know he's, he's kind of set up in a way where he would be a weird guy if you saw him if you worked in this yeah. company you saw him he would be the weird guy that you would probably want to avoid you know doesn't really make eye contact with me when he talks covers his mouth um, has some mm. scarring on his face dresses awfully um, but Reba in this movie 
I think is once again it's played wonderful um, for the very little time that we have of her on the screen. Her inter interactions alongside Dollarhide as he takes her to see the you know the the tranquilized tiger, um, yeah. and then later on when he breaks into her house and you know you know basically says Francis is dead. You know Francis isn't coming back. Francis is gone forever. And yeah. our portrayal of fear is is wonderful as well. Mm. Um, yeah. I think it's great. I think I think it, it is like he is the perfect villain for a movie like this, and it's in what he doesn't do that makes it kind of terrifying. And um, he isolates himself from the rest of the cast as well. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good move. Um, yeah, I think you need that. I think um, yeah, kind of. I think the, the way the the actors relate to him on screen reflects that. Um, mm. And it's it's a good method approach to doing things. I think it it works. Um, when we see him speaking, like his first dialogue scenes are with uh, Freddie Limbs when he's yeah. like basically strapped to the chair and he gets him to read off the, the, the lines and, you know, like, do you see? Do you see? Mm. And it is, it's, it's, it's creepy and it's weird and it's clear that he's getting off with it. What I love yeah. about the scene of him biting out his tongue is the fact that there is something overtly homosexual about it. Mm. It does look like he's planting a kiss on him, and I yeah. love the fact that we we then jump to the outside of the property, and we just hear these kind of muted screams, these muffled yeah. screams. And by the time we get Red Dragon in two thousand and two, it has to be this vicious, you know, brutal act that's happening, and it has to be, you know, we have to see the like the the blood and all the rest, and hear the squelching and the sims. I think it's almost overkill in that movie. I think in this one, it's clear that like he's getting off on the on the the, the fact he's getting off on Lim's fear. Oh and, yeah, and totally. the fact that he then goes down in such a like I say like this overtly sexual way to to, to kind of to, to extract his tongue with his teeth. Um, yeah, it's hard to feel sorry for Lance because Lance basically we called him like a sick pervert in the newspaper. Yeah, he called him a sick pervert. Uh, yeah, which yeah. is can, which is not his words. In fairness, not at uh, all. No, but you can see why here. Uh, he's a bit pissed off with him. Oh yeah, he's like he basically he, he drops him. He takes away all the intellect, the perceived intellect that Dollarhide has for himself. Uh, all this grand grandeur that he expects, all this acclaim, all the majesty of the Red Dragon is stripped away by the fact that the Freddie Lim says he could be impotent and he's a bit of a sexual deviant and all the rest. It yeah. kind of almost belittles what what Dollarhide sees as his, you know, as his grand, his grandness, his his magnum opus, so to speak. And let's face it, it's difficult to really feel any kind of sympathy for journalists because 99% of them are cunts. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, like, especially especially tabloid journalists. You know, the ones yeah, that I mean, are we do need journalism. journalism and there, obviously there are some journalists out there that do some very honest, um, genuine work. Um, but yeah, you know, if you're talking about mainstream media journalists, they're not, they're not, in, they're not interested in their... In passing news are they're just interested in spreading fucking fear and bullshit and Freddie Lance is one of them guys so it's really hard and it's feel sorry for him even though you know he's kind of been set up because like you say they're not his own words mm-hmm. he would have probably written something like that anyway about Dollar Hyde so yeah, yeah. probably they would have eventually got there um, so when I see him flying down the ramp on fire I just think ah oh, well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the other things that I, I really like about this one, um, like like we said earlier on, uh, even though Peterson might not necessarily like his performance as Will Graham, I think with the technology and the science and the understanding of serial killers the way it was back then, I think... I think the, it's better now, isn't it, 30 years later and yeah. you can't watch it back than it probably was at the time. I think it's far more appreciated now. Yeah, like there's, there's scenes of him standing there, you know, talking and basically he asks himself the questions which I really like like obviously in the TV show we see him like use his ability to almost set himself in the crime and then act out the crime mm. um, and this movie he poses himself the questions which he answers so it's yeah. like that you know you walked in here and you saw why did you watch them because you wanted to see this and why, why did this yeah. happen because you wanted to do this so mm. he basically he plays out in dialogue what would it be what would be to any other movie maybe an inner monologue he plays it out in, yeah. in full dialogue I you think do it need that you really need that in this in this early 80s as well because no, I don't think people really understand what this thing is about getting in the psychopath you know getting in a serial killer's head and how yeah. you do that so you really do need him speaking out loud I think it's kind of perfect to illustrate just what his skills are yeah because you know you, you sit on the beach and you find out that you know he's he done this before and it's kind of ruined his life a little bit and all that but you don't really know why to what extent so i think that's a really good way to kind of say you know look this guy he he's got the ability to be a serial killer he thinks like a serial killer mm-hmm. and that's a fucking the bit of a quite a, a cross to bear isn't it really it's and quite a burden that he's got he's genuinely upset by it like when, yeah. you, when you hear him like he gets he goes through a spectrum of really like believable human emotions when he's talking about yeah. it he's angry mm. that he's done certain things he's disgusted he's appalled um, and like I think that that's what makes Peterson's performance brilliant and that's why I say there may be people out there that think I was overly cruel when I said that Norton's performance in Red Dragon is slumming it but go back and watch it he mm. plays it so unbelievably monotone throughout that entire movie I just I never get the I never get the idea that he's repulsed by it you know still and you would like to think even the most hardened and seasoned investigators will come across something that will repulse them you know will come Mm. across something that you know is just as as horrible Um, and I think Peterson plays that that excellent Um, it's worth noting as well that this is this one deviates quite a bit from the book the ending of this one how I was uh, going to ask you which one's more realistic to the book the the Red Dragon or this so it's Red Dragon's more realistic is it no not really no they've never really they've never really given us the the fully realistic ending they've never given us a book ending let's put it that way so do, does um does Dollarhide end up at his house with his wife and kid at any point yes so so and the okay. remake of red dragon so or the movie red dragon from 2002 yes he appears at the house and yes he hunts the family down um and will graham's basically brutally carved up like horribly disfigured um Dollarhide goes to town on him and leaves you know like Dollarhide dies but at the same time Will Graham at the end of Red Dragon the novel is mentally broken he's alone as you know his partner leaves him um, and he becomes this almost this boogie story told in the the kind of Quantico 
halls of this is what can happen. You know, yeah. don't get too close to, to things. Don't allow your you, you know, don't allow yourself to become too attached to things or whatever, or you will end up like Will Graham. Um, so in the Red Dragon movie, he sails off into the sunset with his wife, um, which I I hate as such a, a unbelievably optimistic and cheery ending to that movie. Well, it's weird, isn't it? Because Silence of the Lambs wasn't Hollywood, really. Um, mm-hmm. Hannibal really wasn't like a typical Hollywood movie. So why did they do it with Red Dragon? They didn't need to do that. I, I don't. Like, I don't know. I don't. And I. I hate the fact that at the end of the Red Dragon movie, they tie they tie it into Silence of the Lambs. You know, like Hannibal. We've got this young agent Starling here to see you. It's about this guy that's been doing. I hate that because there are don't years. Need it. Yeah, there are years in between that. the killings. Um, yeah. The, between the two serial killers, there is a passage of time. Um, and Will Graham's mentioned in the further novels. He's mentioned in Silence of the Lambs, and he's mentioned further on in, in Hannibal as well in the passing and comments that are said um, in the end of this movie he is we, we don't get the happy ending so to speak I mean ultimately we do see Dollar Hyde die but it happens happens at um, at the house of Dollar Hyde where he's trying to kill Reba um, and he shoots you know he, he, he can almost fatally injures Will Graham, but Will Graham puts him down. Um, yeah. He also like attacks Crawford, which I think is really quite interesting. So at the end of this movie, a serial killer is down, but we have three people, three quote-unquote innocents or heroes in this yeah. movie that are injured as well, and it's the legacy of the yeah. killer. You know, to kill the killer, to catch the killer, they almost die. Mm. And that's not necessarily a Hollywood ending either. No. So it's not at all, all's, all's, you know, well that ends well, so to speak. So, no, sailing off into the sunset, oh, oh fuck off. And really, that, that ended... <laughs> Couldn't be any more cliche, really. Pissed me off to, with Hannibal writing him a letter. Dear Will, you know, I hope you all fuck off. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't want to <laughs> hear I don't want to hear that, you know what I mean? Um, and like you see, Hannibal doesn't uh, end with a Hollywood ending. It ends with an ending which isn't the same as the book, incidentally. They went for... Uh, the, the ending which made more sense I think the ending of the book as much as I want to see it I don't think it would have worked in that movie um, yeah. and like Silence of the Lambs Clarice is obviously promoted but is, is constantly living in the fear of the shadow of Hannibal Lecter uh, who mm. escapes <laughs> you know what I mean and then hunts Tim Chilton at the end of that movie I'm having an old friend for dinner one of the greatest lines in cinema yeah. history, um, so so they they, they kind of go off piece with that one as well, but I like it. I think they change enough things. I think we, we should probably touch on the fact that this is this movie um, was produced by uh, De Laurentiis, who, who <laughs> kind of iconic name in kind of seventies and eighties cinema, and it is his reasoning that we have Manhunter as a title he wanted to change it, he didn't like Red Dragon um, he wanted okay. it because he's a, he's a Manhunter um, Manhunter's an alright name I'd, I think you could have had Red Dragon in here and it would have been fine, he just didn't want it to go out and sound like some sort of fantasy movie, he wanted it to sound grounded yeah, I mean, in, in the reality. 80s it's all about the fucking front cover and the name isn't it it's yeah. all about that because that's basically what people pick a movie on in a video shop what's it called, what's the picture on the front yeah, 
Um, so yeah, I can see the choice, but obviously Red Dragon is. The thing is, Red Dragon might not work for this because there's not. They don't really mention the Red Dragon, do they? They don't. He shows. He shows a picture the of it. Not really in it. You see yeah. the picture briefly, but he's not like. You know, he's not got this this red dragon adorned on his back. Yeah, um, well, which it probably wouldn't have worked with the actor because he's quite skinny. You need quite a fucking big, muscly back for that to really work, on, yeah. don't you? He's got, I mean, um, Dollarhide in the novel and the other portrayals of him. Dollarhide travels all over the world when he's in the military. He, you know, buys a lot of horrible old dentures. Um, gets a custom pair made for himself that's the pair that he bites people with Um, he's obsessed with the Blake painting, he travels to the Blake painting and destroys the Blake painting in both the book and the movie and the TV show. He eats it, doesn't he? Yeah, he consumes it you know, he consumes it to destroy it but when he sees Reba with his colleague you know, that the last part of humanity is, is stripped away and the dragon takes over altogether um, mm. They don't go into that because, to be honest with you, they spend the first half of the movie really setting up the Graham character, and then yeah. the second half of the movie is setting up the, the the kind of final angle of how how you know the Tooth Fairy will be caught, um, and as a result of that, there's, if you crammed all that into the second half of this movie, it would feel so cluttered that once again, less is more. You don't really need it um, in no. here. It's an adaptation. Um, had this movie been called Red Dragon I think you would have probably had to put it in there but the fact it's called Manhunter allows you the creative direction to to move in a a, a slightly different kind of move Um, the movie itself um, was quite dramatically cut for home video it was only an hour and a half long Um, the, the, the run time for it though um, if you're watching it nowadays, you get the the, the about the two hour, just under the two hour mark. Yeah, mine's mine's two hours one. Yeah, I've, I've got watched. the director's cut because I got the Scream Factory Blu-ray, um, and the director's cut is an additional four minutes on top. Okay. And to be honest with you, I am a firm advocate that if you're going to do director's cut, so you're going to put in footage which has been lost or whatever, if you can't clean it up, don't put it in. Um, mm. And it's horrible uh, in the Scream Factory cut. Like it really oh. is. It's like it looks like shite VHS transfer. Oh, that's annoying. And it's it's most of it is interactions. It's like long. The, there's a longer interaction with with Hannibal and well, the first time they sit down. Yeah. Which was cut out, and I can see why they cut out. It's it's just more of them talking. It doesn't really add much more to the story. Um, and there are a couple other bits peppered throughout and they don't really add anything to it so this is one of these occasions unlike something like the keep for example um, this is one of these occasions where the, the the director's cut being the way it is I'm not actually you know mortified that they cut some stuff out of it for the theatrical yeah. release I think the theatrical release is, is just as strong without it yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on the obviously why he kills the uh, you know when he sees Reba with the colleague? Mm-hmm. Obviously that's his own psychosis. He imagines that they're kissing. Obviously yeah. they're not. Um, I mean he probably thinks it because of how easy she gave it up to him. Yes. To be honest, <laughs> didn't take much. Yeah, didn't take much at all. I mean, did he want that to happen? Did he want to see that so he could kill her and kill the guy? You know, because obviously it is quite innocent. And I don't know, was he always going to the house to kill her? I think... So he needed to see that. 
Yeah, I think he was. I, I don't know. It's, it's fairly aloof in this version. Um, in the other versions, it's made it quite clear, and in the novel, that he's going to see her, sees her interact with someone else, and that he, you know, his paranoia kicks in. Um, yeah. It's not really alluded to. He's he's a psycho. He's psychotic. So we can we can allow any amount of interpretation. I'd like to think that he's probably just going to see her, and his jealousy and insecurity kicks in when he sees her with someone else and the mm-hmm. the the part of him which is the dragon or the part of him that is the, the killer takes over um, and it's like he says you know Francis is dead Francis is gone and he's never coming yeah. back which I, I like I say I love that line and Tom Noonan's voice when he says it is so cold mm. um, it's quite terrifying Um yeah. Which which I love I love as well so that that's how I see that, um, yeah I, I think it'll be interesting because I know that you, you when you say when we're coming to grade this which to, to be fair if you've got anything else we, to say we could probably get into that but I'm I'm pretty much at that stage where I just want to grade it now is there anything else you want to say about Manhunter? I got one question. Uh huh. Where does the letter? How does the letter get into Lecter's cell? What one? The one from the Tooth Fairy? Yeah. Um, it's on his toilet. Well, no, it's, it's on toilet paper, I think they say. So I know, but how does it get in there? I have no idea. I don't think they explain that in any of them. Right. I, I, don't, think, I don't think they ever actually explain it in any of them. It's just always okay. they find it on his toilet paper. Um, yeah, and, and how is he putting adverts in the, in the uh, local newspaper? Well, how how is Hannibal Lecter able to to make a call to find out Will Graham's thing? He's a very clever man. It wouldn't yeah, surprise we, me see, we see him do that, though. Yeah, I don't think you necessarily need to see him do everything in the movie, though. It's you know we're, we're just he's he's hyper intelligent. Yeah. So okay. um, that's how I see it anyway. I love that as well. How he hacks the phone with with a, a bit of Wrigley's. Uh, chewing them like the old fashioned foil yeah. stuff you know just puts it in there and once again like uh, other things that I, I, I prefer to Cox's performance Cox gets right into like you say very pleasant very polite well mannered when we see Anthony Hopkins do it it's you know it's the fake American accent and it's you know go and be a deer and flip down that you know it's like oh, really really Can you, like, do you think this secretary knows what Hannibal Lecter sounds like Anthony Cox is just a fucking sell- uh, Anthony Hopkins is just a fucking sellout in that movie. He really, I, but he, I, didn't need, he did not need the money. It's not the way he might have done. I don't know what the state of his tax bill is, but he didn't. I don't think he probably needed to do that movie. He probably I, got paid a fuckload for doing it. If you probably yeah. look at how much, how long he's in that movie compared to how much he got paid, his per minute rate was probably ridiculous. Oh, it probably was. I, I don't oh, know if... Fuck off, like, if it's just I, a bad performance. I don't know if it's by that point he just identifies with the character so much that he doesn't want someone else to portray him. Fair enough. You know what I mean? And if that is the case, fine. But, like you say, he adds he adds nothing to his performance. If anything, he undermines the performance because it doesn't make sense that he would be so animated and so playful at that point, yet so sinister and dark in Silence of the Lambs, a movie that chrono- uh, chronologically speaking um, comes after this one. Yeah, it, it doesn't really make any sense at all. Um, I, I don't quite, I don't quite get that. You know, they also I, give him a ponytail, and 
Cannibal oh, Lexi does not strike me as the kind of man that would have a bald ponytail. Oh, it's so bad. It's so sad. Don't have a bald ponytail. Like, ponytails are bad enough as it is. Don't have one when you've got a bald head like fucking Francis Rossi from Status Quo. Because... Yeah, he's, he's, ro- he's rocking about the place with a skullet. You know what I mean? It doesn't It doesn't make any <laughs> is sense. Is that what it's called? Yeah, it's called a skullet. <laughs> oh, brilliant. It doesn't make any sense. I hate it. That's I... loads better than a bald ponytail. A, a skullet. Bo- a skullet. Um... Yeah, so right, so I I'll, let it go. <laughs> let it go. <laughs> You're bald. Right, I'm gonna come in with my grade here, and uh, there is there is a degree of bias here. I fucking love this movie. I really, really, really love this movie. And watching it back on Blu-ray for the first time on Blu-ray, um, I watched both versions. I watched the theatrical cut, and then I watched the director's cut. The theatrical cut's beautiful. Screen Factory really have went all out and the the kind of those blues particularly that are shot in are just fantastic to watch yeah I can imagine yeah. it's it's just a, it's an incredible print um it with the dodgy fashion which once again this is the 80s and i've got to hold it to the standard of when it came out at 86 i know a lot of movies that came out in 86 that have pretty horrible fashions um so i can't really hold that as a criticism that part hasn't aged at all well but like you see like if i saw dollar hide in 2016 wearing that sort of stuff it probably wouldn't look out of place it probably just it wouldn't work. on him no, no it, it kind of what tom did and just looks like the guy that would wear that shit um my score is going to come in like scarily high it's a nine for me I, okay. I I think this movie is just is one it's ahead of its time I think two the performances are really really strong three even though I know all the adaptations of the novel and having read the novel I really like the story in this one I like the fact that when they start taking things out of of the novel like stripping parts of the story the they make the movie make sense as opposed to right we'll just take the dragon element out and then we'll just keep the movie the same as the novel with everything else in it that to me yeah. wouldn't make sense um so they, they they really do they kind of reshape things um lector's name spelt with a k in this movie which makes no fucking sense at all um no. i don't know why they do that and it's weird because the only time you ever see that is in the credits so uh, yeah it doesn't choice it doesn't yeah it doesn't mean it <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Um, funnily enough, uh, doing a wee bit of research on the on the old uh, on the Wikipedia's and stuff, um, like other people that were cast, like are potentially considered for the role, uh, included William Friedkin, he who directed <laughs> right. The Exorcist, um, yep. as well as John Lithgow. Which is hilarious because, like, John Lithgow obviously did Raising Kane, where he plays a serial killer, but then when you see John Lithgow and Dexter. Oh, yeah. We're, we're literally, what, we're about eight episodes into that season at the minute, rewatching it. Oh, his performances. It's one of the best serial killer performances on screen, I think. I think yeah. it's amazing. But he, funnily enough, his portrayal of the Trinity killer is very similar to Tom Noonan's portrayal of Francis Dollarhide. Mm. I feel if you if you look at him the way he speaks to people, not covering his mouth, but that kind of lumbering presence of him, yeah, is very 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 similar. And I mean, both of them are very tall actors with very kind of deeper voices. Um, but I, I I liken those two performances very close together. But mm. those were people that were put up for it. But I think 
casting Tom Noonan as a stroke of genius for this one. I love the score. I love the cinematography. Um, yeah, this movie really is. There are a couple of a couple of things that date not very well for me, which knock it down. The dialogue also, in a couple of bits, is a wee bit clunky and a wee bit on the nose for for the performances. But with that, I think this is pretty much a flawless movie. So yeah, it, it, it would get a 9.5 if some of my concerns were rectified a bit better. But yeah, it's, it's a 9 out of 10 for me. I think this one is the welcome return to form in the in the the canon of, of Michael Mann. I think it's a fucking wonderful movie. What about yourself? Yeah, it's a really solid movie. I like the way Michael Mann really jumps from genre to genre as well. I mm-hmm. mean, with that, his next movie is so fucking different. <laughs> so different. This uh, is unbelievable. Isn't it? Um, I can't wait for that. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it just suffers some of these 80s things. They're not really the movie's fault because it was set in the 80s. And obviously, the movie was not going to know. Nobody knew at the time that looking back, 80s was going to be such a fucking cringeworthy era. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Like the 90s was as well, to be honest, and I'm sure we'll look back on the 2000s in another 10 years and just say, my God, what was what were we all thinking? You know, yeah. um, what was a hipster? I mean, <laughs> oh, fucking hell, yeah. There would just be another version of it. My brother uh, made me laugh. Like he, um, my brother lives in France, and he said there's like a trend now in France where people, and I've seen it kind of on top, in uh, like when you walk past Topshop, they have the fucking mannequins dressed like this. Like dress trousers... But they like taper off to the ankle. Oh yeah, I've seen this as well. I don't get it. And then, um, and then like big sort of clumpy shoes that yeah. make you look like a human golf club. It's like it, it's like it's like a really shite Frankenstein. I know. What the fuck? What's going on? With it's that? weird as well because I I don't I used to shop in Topman probably about ten years ago and I don't anymore. But I know that they make they basically dress the people that work in the shop the same way that they dress their mannequins. Yeah. So you basically have to dress like a prick and you get no say in that. You get no choice. Um, so yeah, there's these like there's, there's weird 80-isms. I mean, there's some strange things as well that I find are a bit of a, a sort of a strange choice because they don't really match up with the rest of the movie. There's a Michael Bay-esque slow-mo shot, uh-huh. which is obviously a famous Michael Bay thing now. Um, I don't know if that's in many other Michael Mann's movies, but there's a weird slow-mo shot that kind of didn't work for me. And then there's a weird, you know, there's like double take edit shots that you yeah. see in like the Van Damme films where they'll show you like Van Damme's famous jump kick from about four or five different angles, but it's the same kick. Mm-hmm. They do that here where they show you the exact same shot repeated and it's from the same angle and everything. It's literally the same shot. It happens. I think when like he shoots one of the cops, it happens like somebody throws a punch and it does it. That's right. So where did that come from? It just I seemed a bit odd to me. And I know it's not that. <laughs> right. Okay. And maybe that'll become clear then the more we watch Michael Mann stuff. Because as big as a fan I am of Michael Mann movies, I don't, until we've sort of watching the films in order the way we are, I don't think I'm going to learn the tropes of Michael Mann maybe for another three or four films. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It just didn't work for me. Um, Slap bang in the middle of the 80s, so obviously the style was fucking weird. I didn't like the Iron Butterfly song. It just didn't work for me. Right. I don't know why I didn't like that. I don't know if it's just because it reminds me of the Simpsons episode where like the woman plays it on the, on the organ in church. Yeah. Um, it just took me out of what should have been quite a tense scene. Um, mm-hmm. 
the score's superb. There's some really cheesy music. Like the, the end credits, which is like a freeze frame followed by an incredibly nondescript 80s cheese fest of the song. Yeah. Didn't like that. Um, <laughs> it's weird. Like for me, it's a, it is a brilliant film, but uh, 80s is probably my least favourite movie era. Um, I much prefer films that have come out in the 90s and much more. my favourite era is the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, this just suffers from too many 80s-isms for me to score incredibly high. I mean, the highest this film could probably have ever gotten for me would have been a nine. So I'm giving it an eight. All right. Just based on the fact little personal problems with it that probably are unfair, but it's just kind of, you know, how I feel about the movie. Um, it is a good film. It's just not anything I particularly will go back to time after time after time. And it boils down to not being able to particularly put my finger on it because as a movie... It is a fantastic film. Like the characters are brilliant. The, the scripts, there's a few problems, but it is a pretty tight script. The whole story and everything is great. Um, it's amazingly shot. The score is great. It just doesn't do that thing for me that a film needs to do to a, a score a really high mark. I mean, Thief. You saw how much I bummed Thief. I fucking loved that, and I still only gave it a nine. Yeah. So me giving this an eight doesn't mean it's a bad movie in the slightest. It just means it didn't do that extra thing that makes me probably want to watch it again in another year's time. I probably won't now watch this film for five years. Mm-hmm. You know, I might end up. I'll probably get. I'll look out for the Screen Factory Blue when it's cheap, and I'll try and get it. Because let's just talk about the price of Screen Factory. They can go fuck themselves. I know it's not their fault. Because you can only buy Screen Track Factory stuff to the UK from a third-party seller, mm-hmm. and they obviously they know that, so they jack up the price. Yeah. Um, the cheapest you can get a Screen Factory really is about fifteen to twenty pounds. Fifteen, if you're lucky, it's normally about twenty quid. It's went it? up since the um, pound devalued. Yeah, so it's costing yeah. that a lot more now. Um, so if I see this cheap somewhere i will definitely buy it with a view to watching it again in a you know in a few years time mm-hmm. um it's just not something that i'd watch regularly whereas for me thief i could watch that again tomorrow so that's the kind of barometer that i'm setting it against as we are obviously talking about you know michael mann movies um so this is an eight doesn't mean it's a bad film it's a fantastic film it just doesn't do that extra thing for me that sort of elevates it to a nine or a ten Awesome, awesome. So the next question, the question that we ask every single episode is, as it currently stands three movies in, is Thief still Michael Mann's best movie? I think so. I would agree. I would agree. I, 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 can't, I can't dispute that. As much as I enjoy this movie, and I really, really do, I think it is a, a phenomenal movie, Thief to me holds up even stylistically, and fashion, even fashion-wise and all the rest. Um, it's weird, isn't it, how it hasn't aged and it's only five years. I different. think it's just. I think it's more the genre. You know okay. what I mean? Because it's dealing with like gangsters and you know criminals and stuff like that. Like the, the idea of a, a guy wearing jeans and a leather jacket is no different nowadays than it was back then. It might stylistically look yeah. a bit. You know, the the jacket may look a bit more expensive nowadays, but that works. And the mobsters all dressed in suits. Um, you know to what be mean? fair, nineteen eighty one it's still 70s because yeah. it's so close mm-hmm. 1986 you are fucking slap bang in the middle of the 80s at this point it's like in 1989 and 1991 it's still a crossover there isn't there but yeah. you know five years is a long time in fashion in the 80s because so much changed didn't yeah. it oh, so yeah. much erupted yeah um, 
so that's probably what it is. Um, yeah, no criticism there. But yeah, for me, Thief is still the better movie, and I'd be interested to see if I enjoyed Thief as much the second time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I reckon I probably will, that's and an I'll let you know. Um, yeah, it's an amazing, it's an amazing movie. So yeah, yeah. so as so, we're um, saying, Thief still ruling the roost. Still a high recommend. Yeah. Yeah, what did you say? I said, as it stands Sorry. just now, Thief is still ruling the roost. It's still the top notch, yeah, but we've still got a good... I mean, we've got an amazing film coming next week that I've probably not seen for 15 years, but I think Daniel Day-Lewis is phenomenal, um, yeah. so I'm excited about that. And obviously we've got Heat, which I think for me is going to be the main sort of contender for the top spot. I think so as well. I think um, as it stands just now from from recollection and memory and stuff like that, Heat's my favourite movie man's ever done and it'll be interesting okay. having watched them all, like watching the movies in the, the, the order that we are and actually pitting them against, like I would never conventionally pit Heat against Thief. I wouldn't do that, but now I've watched Heat, uh, Thief again reminding myself how fucking good that movie is, moving in mm. to, to, to watch Heat. You know, I already know what the benchmark is to be the best um, in man's back catalogue, and I can, I can better benchmark it when I watch Heat. But yeah, um, I think I think we're both saying um, go out and check Manhunter if you've never seen it. Um, and like Andy said, so much good stuff to come. So we're going to take a short break just now. You're going to hear promos for shows on Legion Podcast Network, the network that exclusively puts out Opera Omnia. Uh, when myself and Andy come back, we are going to be closing out the show right after this. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host, Duncan McLeish, and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old-school horror favourites, as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under the Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under the Stairs, signing off. Hello? Hello, who is this? Who are you trying to reach? I don't know. Um, I think you've got the wrong number. Do I? I'm going to hang up. Wait. Popcorn? You're making popcorn. Uh-huh. I only eat popcorn when I listen to podcasts. I'm about to listen to a podcast. Oh, really? Which one? Probably the podcast on Haunted Hill. Is that the one with the two guys with the beards? Uh, yeah, Dan and Gav. Dan and Gav, yeah. That podcast was scary. I liked it. Most episodes, they look at two different horror movies. Each episode, they look at a world of a strange, where they look at weird things from around the world. Sometimes, they even do special episodes where they look at different genres or directors' discographies and talk about them. Do you have a boyfriend? Maybe. So where can I find the podcast on Haunted Hill? Well, you can go to legionpodcast.com, Facebook, Twitter, or just go into iTunes and search for the podcast on Haunted Hill. So, are you going to ask me out? Um... 
And welcome back. So you've been listening to episode number three of season one of Opera Omnia. Our continued look at Michael Mann's back catalogue in season one brought us to movie number three, which was Manhunter from 1986. Um, yeah, I, Andy, you have teased, kind of, what we're going to be discussing on episode number four. You mentioned Daniel Day-Lewis and... Um, you mentioned how he's a fucking phenomenal actor anyway, but this is the one that really kind of makes him a household name, so to speak, and also makes okay. Michael Mann a, a household name because this is the movie that makes him a blockbuster director as opposed to a director of genre cinema. Yeah. And the movie is? It's Last of the Mohicans, and I remember probably watching it as a kid um, and probably enjoying it for, I reckon, very different reasons to how I'll probably enjoy it next week. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just because you do, don't you, as a kid? You know, you watch stuff and there's certain things you're after as a child, as a, you know, a teenager, maybe a lot of violence, um, a lot of action, and probably nuanced performances and deep character characteristics and character portrayals and, and you know depth in dialogue and that sort of thing completely pass you by or they did me anyway I was quite an immature movie goer I think um, <laughs> I couldn't I be think my sort of... I could not be fucked with the romance in Last of the Mohicans when I was younger it was like all that bit, okay. you know, I will find right. you I will come back for you I was like oh fuck off just go and kill someone with that weird blue jaggy yeah. sword thing Um Okay. Yeah, I, I think. So I literally, I, I don't remember anything about it. I'm just excited because I know it's a highly regarded film. I'm quite into the subject matter. Um, you know that whole thing of, of you know cowboys and Indians is just pretty fucking cool. And uh, you know, in the, the main act, the stuff that I've watched him in since, I've never seen him do a bad film. Um, he, he handpicks his movies. Daniel Day Lewis. He kind of mm-hmm. you don't hear from him for five years, and then he comes and he does an absolute barnstormer of a movie, and then he just fucks off for another five years. Um, I mean, the last thing that I saw him in that I was absolutely blown away by was There Will Be Blood. Oh, it's an uh, amazing movie. Which is phenomenal. So, I, um, yeah, I'm just really excited. I'm going to try and get it on Blu-ray um, mm-hmm. and see if I can get that to come in time so I can watch it on Blu-ray um, and watch any special features and stuff as well so we can kind of talk about the making of it if uh, if there's anything on there. And um, When's the last time you saw this, Last of the Mohicans? Oh, uh, 90s, in the 90s. Wow, long time ago then. So yeah, I mean, your film taste have probably changed a shitload as well at that by that time. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think um, the kind of underlying thing for me with Last of the Mohicans is that I know it's like it's a blockbuster movie. It's big. It's a you know it's like, so over the top, and you know it, it kind of it predates a lot of movies which then you know predates Braveheart you know it predates mm. uh, The Patriot and all these movies that dealt with kind of period time settings will it um, portray the Americans as being a bunch of cunts is it almost like is it like the Confederate kind of era and I know it's, it's uh, the it's the French English uh, American Civil War if that makes oh, okay. any sense it was the war between so basically the, the the story was you know at that time there was competing forces trying to to keep control of America we had the British the red coats and we had the French who were the blue coats and um, yeah, both so of it's them, not literally cowboys and Indians it's just it's no. the red Indians kind of versus just our soul everybody else yeah well the um, red Indians are underpinned by the French it's the French that Okay. That kind of the French are fighting, but they're using we both like both sides carved up American Indians to, to help them to their cause. So the British used yeah. some, and the French used some. So um, uh, yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. It's, it's probably worthwhile mention just before we leave uh, this episode, because uh, this one has been a doozy, but been plenty to talk about, unlike the Keep episode, um, was that myself and yourself uh, finally met. We, we, we got a chance. An opportunity we did. To, to, to actually meet up. How cool was that? It was fucking great, man. Yeah, I um, I did a five-mile drive uh, up to Scotland. <laughs> five miles. <laughs> which was not as bad as you think. I mean, there'd be people in America, like, they would just be laughing, going, five miles is nothing, mate. That's you mean the same five state. hours? Oh, five hours, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say five so miles. <laughs> five miles, imagine. That'd be great. Um, yeah, so, like, you know, that's probably the longest I've, I've driven in my car, to be honest. Um, but it was well worth it. It was fucking awesome to meet Duncan. He's a handsome brute in the flesh. <laughs> yeah, charmer. <laughs> um, and we watched John Carpenter, which was fucking badass, wasn't it? It kind of makes me want, a, and I know it'd be a huge undertaking, and I don't know if I could be bothered with it for a season two, just because there's like 30 odd movies. Did really make me want to do a John Carper, Carpenter opera on there. I kind of do my own John Carpenter retrospective about once a year anyway, where I just rally through all of his films. I kind of do that on my own. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, it just makes you it, it just makes you realise how fucking great it is because basically his gig, for anyone that like doesn't know sort of what he was doing, he released two albums, then he called Lost Themes, um, uh-huh. which were basically songs as if they were movie themes. You know, they, they've kind of got that feel to them. Um, they weren't themes that he ever kind of used in movies i think he wrote them like well after he's afterwards didn't he he's just called it lost themes because when you hear the songs you can imagine that they would be the theme to a you know a sci-fi film or a horror film or an action film or whatever so he played sort of probably half the gig was songs from his lost themes albums and then the other half of the gig was basically his the scores to his movies so we had the fog escape from new york halloween big children in little china christine fucking amazing just playing those really fucking loud with an awesome support band and footage from the films really nicely kind of edited on the screen behind you and it just makes you go my god john carpenter's a fucking legend (laughs) it really is it really is he came on the stage not giving two fucks did what he needed to do played a bitch in set reminded you why he is probably one of the greatest filmmakers ever uh, yeah. when you see those clips of those movies in the background and I did like every clip that played there I was like like one second we were seeing stuff from They Live and I was like I totally want to see They Live then Big Trouble and Little China come on the screen I was like I totally want to see that then The Mouth of Madness come on I was like I totally want to see that it just yeah. you know I, I, it's such such an awesome awesome talent Um and yeah it was it was great it was great to see that and it was fantastic to, to, to take it in with someone that I knew would appreciate everything on stage which was yourself because i know how much and you are a do you know what not many people i mean i know we weren't we were very near to the front so there was probably only five or six rows in front of us but no one really seemed to be not like dancing along to it mm-hmm. yeah and i was kind of thought fucking hell come on i mean I, we weren't dancing because it was like a seated gig but we were fucking like bobbing our heads and our legs were going and do you know what i mean and i yeah. just thought Come on, people. Fuck yeah, I know British people are a bit reserved and a bit fucking boring. You were in like, Edinburgh. In Edinburgh, they're very posh, very proper. Don't, it's the same, don't it's the same where I am, mate. It's exactly the same where I am. And I just kind of thought, come on, people. Do you not know what you've got here in front of you? <laughs> like, yeah. 
Come just on! Fucking John Carpenter, show him some goddamn respect. But I reckon a lot of people just went with a friend who wasn't really into it. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like a lot of people probably took their misses because, like you met, like one of your mates was there, and she was kind of like, "Yeah, I'm not really like that big chubby little China movie." And I was, like, yeah, I thought at, at that point I could I could feel Andy's seething rage. Hold uh, me back. <laughs> I think I, I I think maybe a season three or season four of Opera Omnia does John Carpenter because I get a it's got to, it's got to be done. It almost seems unfair not to, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I get I, I would love to do that because I think we both have a difference of opinion on what his best movie is, and I would go yeah. further to say that I think our top fives would be wildly different as well. Yeah, and it's where I mean, John Carpenter, two of my favourite movies of all time. I think maybe three of them are in a John Carpenter. Like three of, like probably my top five best films of all time. I think two of them are in there. Yeah, you know, this guy's just fucking amazing. I've been collecting his movies on Blu-ray. Um, I think I only need to get about two more, and I've got literally everything he's ever done on on film at least. Um, I know he's done a few, like a few TV bits and that, like cigarette burns and stuff. But yeah, there's not really a bad movie in the in the lot of them. You know, it's uh, it's yeah, it's an awesome uh, an awesome collection of movies, and it was weird because we were supposed to go on a bit of a tour of Edinburgh, but we just <laughs> sat and talked <laughs> for like four or five hours, which is so weird because that's all we do on podcasts. Yeah, you think it was it like, like it's the second it's the second best first date I've ever been on. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say that Rachel was the first. <laughs> you have to <laughs> say that from you that. Do. I'd, yeah, it was I'd, weird, like, because we do talk fairly regularly, but we just seem to have so fucking much to talk about, didn't we? We just kind of sat chatting and chatting, and it's like, oh, fucking hell, the gig starts in an hour. Yeah, you got, like, the, the quickest whistle-stop tour of Edinburgh, which uh, I kind of felt, uh, like, a wee bit sorry about, because Edinburgh has about a million awesome things to do for horror fans. At least um, we went to FOP. I've never been to FOP. And you bought something from FOP. And I've noticed that you're already selling what you bought from FOP. That didn't take long. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I just don't think I'll ever watch it again. <laughs> um, I've not we've not got around to the visitor yet. Um, it's funny. I went to stick it on in the room because it was like a little <laughs> in the room that I stayed in Edinburgh. There was like about an 11 inch TV <laughs> with DVD player, and obviously you get the Blu-ray and the DVD with a lot of Arrow stuff. So I thought I'm going to stick one of them on. Didn't even fucking work. DVD <laughs> player in the room didn't even work. So I um I just put a bit of music on and just fell asleep. Um, but yeah, FOP is owned by HMV, isn't it, actually? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it's, it's only like having an HMV, which we do have in Leicester. But for some reason, I was incredibly excited to go into FOP and just had to spend some money in there. And they had an arrow sale on, so I thought, I'm just going to get a couple of bits. But the annoying thing is, like, obviously me and you are the same with arrow stuff. Anything that was really worth having, we already had. Yeah, so it's always the, the, the thing with like that. Um, they're having an arrow sale. Most arrow blurries are £6, and I'm like, oh, that's amazing. You go in, and it's all things that you you bought when they came out for yeah. a lot more money, um, yeah. which is insane. But, yeah, it was, it, it was good seeing you. Uh, and I dare say we'll, we'll do something again somewhere in the future, um, which I'm very much looking forward to. But before yeah, then, we have, we have some more Opera Omnia uh, to, to bring you. And um, next week, or sorry, in two weeks' time, fortnight, uh, when we drop our next episode, episode number four, we will be looking at Michael Mann's Last of the Mohicans. So, Andy, would you like to say goodbye to the ladies and gentlemen, please? Yep, goodbye ladies and gents and we'll see you in two weeks. And from Duncan McLeish, thank you for checking out Opera Omnia. Bye everyone. Bye.